Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio. It's important to have a couple things that you believe to be true. That's what guides your investment thesis. And it's even better if what you believe to be true differs from what other people believe to be true. Hi, I'm Michael Casson. Welcome to Good Company, where I'll explore how marketing, media, entertainment, and tech are intersecting, transforming our lives and the way we do business at a breakneck speed. I'll be joined by some of the greatest business minds and strongest leaders who will share how they've built companies from the ground up or transformed them from the inside out. My bet is you'll pick up a lesson or two along the way. It's all good. I'm excited to welcome Spencer Raskoff to Good Company. Spencer is an entrepreneur and the chair and co-founder of companies including Picasso, Recon Food, Dot .LA, Supernova, and 75 and Sunny. And he's sure to have his hand in plenty of other companies that we'll talk about. Oh, and by the way, Spencer is also the co-founder of two companies I'm sure you've heard of, Hotwire and Zillow. Spencer, welcome. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Spencer, give me give me a little bit of your background. You founded Hotwire at the ripe old age of 24, which I guess in some quarters feels old uh, sometimes, but for me feels extraordinarily young. You know, most people in their 20s are just trying to figure out uh, what it's like to stand on their own two feet. And, you know, here you went and created a, you know, wildly successful company. Give me a little bit of a you know, kind of what inspired you? It's, you know, the question you ask a singer is what was the song and who was the artist that inspired you to want to sing? In your case, what was it? Uh, So I was always interested in entrepreneurship ever since I was a kid. And I came from a family of entrepreneurs. My uh, grandfather was the founder of a, a successful textile company. My dad was an entrepreneur in the music industry, you know, had a terrific career as an innovative an innovative leader in music through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and I guess even into the 2000s. And so I watched that as a kid and wanted to start something. And as straight out of college, I started my career in investment banking. I found that to be unfulfilling. Um, and I, I left Goldman Sachs after two years to move out west. I worked in San Francisco at TPG, which is a private equity firm. And with plenty of plenty of roots in in your in your industry, Michael of, of media and entertainment, of course. So uh, while at TPG, we incubated a company called Hotwire, and the idea behind Hotwire was to try to create an industry consortium company that would compete in the discount online travel space. And so we got six airlines together: United, American, Continental, Northwest, U.S. Air, and America West and TPG, and we created this consortium company, sort of like the way the studios created Hulu, actually, as a as sort of a wedge against other streaming services. Here, the airlines were creating an online travel company as a wedge against Expedia and, and um, Priceline and other travel sites. So that was um, my first experience in entrepreneurship. I left TPG to help run Hotwire, and that was 99. Things were going well, and then 2001 happened, and 9-11 was an incredibly difficult time for Hotwire and the online travel industry overall. We managed to, to turn the company around and survive the 2001 travel recession. And by 2003, we sold the company to Expedia for about $700 million. So it was a, a very important, formative first experience in entrepreneurship after a uh, childhood and teenage years growing up wanting to be a founder and an entrepreneur. And Spencer, what you've done is you've identified a real penchant for finding 
opportunities in industries or in businesses, you saw the opportunity for disruption, whether it was, as you just said, in travel or the true kind of democratization of real estate uh, data when you co-founded Zillow. And, you know, I was looking at something, a piece of property the other day on Zillow. I mean, you know, it's still a great utility and something that, you know, in a business that really did need disruption, you know, well, considering you just alluded to 1999, in that moment in dot-com kind of 1.0, you and I both remember so many stories of companies and ideas that were disrupting things that kind of didn't need to be disrupted. Yet there were so many great stories, yours being several of those stories, of things that needed to be disrupted. One rubric that I like to apply when looking at industries and uh, through this lens is to think about the total addressable market, so the TAM in the industry, and relate it to the net promoter score of consumer experiences in the industry. So if you find a really, really big industry where consumers are very unhappy, very dissatisfied, that's probably a really good area to do a startup. Um, online real estate is a good example. Massive industry, uh, you know, 1.6 trillion of residential real estate transactions every year, 100 billion of commissions, 20 billion of online advertising, or sorry, total real estate advertising. And yet everybody hates their real estate agent. Everybody hates paying 6%. Everybody's unhappy about, you know, everyone feels they're paying too much or selling too fast or selling too, like there's just a lot of dissatisfaction. Healthcare is another huge industry, you know, massive, massive market. But there's so much broken. The net promoter score, you know, as a me- which measures how happy consumers are of healthcare, is very, very, very low. So these are industries. It's one know, notch below your cable guy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. These are these are industries with you know with lots of opportunity for startup disruption. Uh, another one is government. I, I haven't you know I haven't done a lot of investing in gov tech, but it's hard to imagine a bigger industry than government with a lower net promoter score of consumer satisfaction. So I don't know what the right startup idea is in that space, but um, that's a good rubric to apply when looking at industries. And, and you know, when you talk about real estate, let's focus. Uh, what was your aha moment with Zillow, A, and B, what was your aha moment with Picasso? Because what you what you looked at disrupting with Picasso was the second home market or the, you know, the vacation market, which was also fraught with timeshares and, you know, all kinds of almost snake oil, want to buy some, you know, swampland in Florida, thinking of, you know, back to kind of disrupting second home purchases. Yeah. So just to to hit on Zillow quickly, you know, in 2006, the insight that we had was that there was no real estate service that prioritized the consumer. The top real estate sites in in the mid-2000s were all industry-focused, industry-serving companies, Realtor.com, MLS sites, brokerage websites. They existed to help the industry, not to help the consumer. And so it's a really simple, obvious in in hindsight, those are always the best startup ideas, those that are super obvious in hindsight, um, insight that we should do something that consumers will find really useful. What would consumers find really useful? They would love to know what everyone's house is worth. That would be really valuable information for people buying and selling in the transaction. And you know what? It would also be really voyeuristic information for those not in the transaction. So it's a double a double benefit. So that was the insight when we started Zillow in 06. Um, the insight when my team and I started Picasso in 2018 was to try to democratize access to second home ownership. 
I've been lucky enough to be able to own a second home and it's amazing. It's extraordinary. It's where I'm my best self. It's where I'm my, you know, the best dad that I can be, the best husband I can be. I'm a better friend there. Everything is better there than in my primary home. And yet second homes are pretty much inaccessible to most people because they're so expensive. And so the idea behind Picasso is to solve that accessibility issue through co-ownership to let people own an eighth, a quarter, three eighths, or half of a second home to own it with other families who they don't know. And those other co-owners own the rest of the home and therefore the home is used more often instead of sitting vacant like most second homes are. So that was the insight behind Picasso. Company's grown very, very quickly. We've raised hundreds of millions of dollars of venture capital. We're in 40 markets in four countries. Uh, we're the fastest company to become a unicorn um, after just six months. So Picasso is off to a very, very fast start, a much faster start than Zillow was just two or three years into Zillow's ex existence. And I think the reason for that is, again, if you think about the size of the market relative to the net promoter score, the size of the second home market of people's interest in second homes is massive. And yet the net promoter score is very, very low because most people just can't participate in owning a second home. Most 75% of people that have bought Picasso so far, it's the first time they've ever owned a second home. And so we're opening, we're, we're creating a new market. And you marketed it in a very effective way, direct to consumer. And, you know, it's the area that we focus on so much at MediaLink, which is, you know, that direct to consumer market, it, 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 you, you, you went right at it. And, and, you know, in performance marketing in, in, in a brilliant way, because you've built the brand and, you know, you've identified for the consumer the need and, you know, th that direct to consumer route, uh, I think, is, you know, proven to be very effective. Obviously, if you've achieved that status uh, as quickly as you did out of the gate, something's working. And, and I would guess a fair amount of it is in the marketing of Picasso. It is. It is. So the marketing team is basically my old team from Zillow. Our CMO was a, a, a marketing leader at Zillow and most of her team joined her from Zillow. And they've done an amazing job of marketing this as a luxury aspirational brand. It's luxury home ownership for one eighth the cost, which is a very appealing value proposition. Um, we've tapped into a couple other key concepts around sustainability. The, the fact that owning a second home and letting it sit empty most of the year is really wasteful. And so Picasso is the more sustainable way to own a second home. Picasso is the more turnkey way to own a second home. I mean, there are a lot of pieces to the value proposition, but in the aggregate, it's resonating very, very well, you know, and, and I think is, is poised. It, it, it was, uh, there was some luck to the timing as well because of COVID changing people's need and interest and ability to use a second home. So, so many knowledge workers are now untethered from their office, right? They're able to work remotely and able to enjoy a second home more than they otherwise could have because they don't have to live near their office all the time. And so, yeah, I'm wondering, uh, you know, just parenthetically, are those quote second homes or are those becoming primary? I guess it's, it's a little blurred. I mean, we have many folks that don't own their primary home. They, they'll rent an apartment in you know, San Francisco, New York, LA, and then they own a Picasso as a vacation home. So the only home they own is a portion of a, a second home through Picasso. And then we have many, you know, also many homeowners, including me, many Picasso owners, where their Picasso is a third home. So I own all of a second home and then I have a third home. And it would never make sense economically to me uh, to own 
a third home. It barely makes economic sense to own a second home. And uh, but to only pay one eighth the price and one eighth of the upkeep and one eighth of the taxes, et cetera, to use it six weeks a year, that's terrific. And now I live in L.A. and I have a Picasso in Malibu, which I never thought I would have a a second home in Malibu, but it's amazing. And it's one eighth the price. I I love that. I'm I'm liking this. This may be a direct to consumer ad right here, Spencer. Uh, Let me ask you another question. Seventy five and sunny is one of your other recent uh, business ventures. Can you give us a little insight into, you know, the idea and your original vision for this fund and what your what your focus is? 75 and Sunny is my family office venture capital firm and we invest in startups. We've got about 100 uh, early stage companies that we're investors in and then we also start companies uh, at 75 and Sunny Labs. And I think it's important when you have uh, when you're investing, whether it's your own money or someone other people's money through a fund, it's important to have a couple things that you believe to be true. And that's what guides your investment thesis. And it's even better if what you believe to be true differs from what other people believe to be true. That's really where you get that those asymmetric returns. But some things that I believe to be true and that I invest behind these thesis are, number one, companies are, the the nature of work is changing and people are increasingly working remotely. And the reason that is so important is companies are going to spend a lot of money on software to drive employee engagement. And and so about a quarter of 75 and Sunny's investments are HR tech, are software companies in future of work. These are companies that provide software to help employers onboard new employees remotely or do employee training or employee performance management or help managers be better managers to their employees remotely. There's all sorts of software that's being developed in that space. Um, Another thing I believe to be true is that vertical, that social media is verticalizing. So social media has become so ubiquitous horizontally that is unbundling into these verticals where you've got Strava for running and all trails for hiking and LinkedIn for your career. And what you might post on LinkedIn, it would be totally different than what you post on a horizontal social network like Instagram. And so I've created a couple companies through 75 and Sunny Labs in this vertical social media strategy. One of them is Q, which I remember I I showed you at at a dinner. Q lets you keep track of what streaming content you're watching and what you intend to watch, film or, or TV. Um, so it's basically a vertical social network for streaming content. So QUEUE is in the iPhone app store and iOS, and it's a, it's a great app that lets you track what to watch and what you're watching. And then you, know, you add things to your queue. And then like I, I just used it yesterday, my son and I sat down to watch uh, to watch something and we pulled up his queue. And then because I follow him on queue, I tap a button and it shows what's in our shared queues. So I've got about 100 things in my queue. He's got 100 things in his, but we have four things in common that we both wanted to watch. And then we we hit the spinner and it it went, shows randomly between those four and we knew what to watch, which I mean, that's, I love, that's I love a that. great use case. So so Q is vertical social for, for streaming. Recon Food is vertical social for food and cooking. It's a it's a food and cooking social media app that lets you share your love of food and reconnect. And and Spencer, I understand Recon Food was an idea that really emanated from uh, true family office from your daughter. Uh, that's right. That's right. So so my 17 year old daughter is fully immersed in social media like most teenagers are. And she has seen firsthand and told me firsthand how social media is broken. That if you look in her Instagram or her TikTok, it's it's this whiplash between um, seeing other people living their best lives, which tends to make people feel crappy about themselves, right. or 
seeing the horrors and tragedies of the world all around us, climate change, school shootings, election hacking, war in Europe, et cetera. And especially for a teenager, that whiplash is, is causes mental health issues and, and just makes everybody feel bad. And yet cooking and food and is just this kind of just happy, happy thing that if you spend five minutes on recon food, looking at pretty pictures of food that people are cooking and people are eating in restaurants and you, you know, click on hashtag healthy and now you're looking at healthy food and you click on hashtag breakfast and you're looking at people's breakfasts like you don't feel bad about the world. It's it's kind of like Instagram and Facebook used to be 10 years ago when it was just fun baby pictures of, of your friends or, you know, other cool things happening in people's lives before it sort of took this left turn into this social media abyss that we're all experiencing. And so anyway, that recon food is trying to recreate that in this single vertical of food. Well, it, it, it's making me feel good just thinking about it. What is the advice that you give to young entrepreneurs? I mean, you know, and I'm sure like probably way more than me, you get the opportunity to mentor people and, and people look to you as somebody who's created billions and billions of dollars worth of value in terms of the companies that you've participated in, founded, et cetera. You know, is, is there one bit of advice or several you know, tidbits yeah. of advice that you give when that young entrepreneur comes and says, Spencer, what's the meaning of life? <laughs> yeah, I think the biggest thing is for a founder to have a personal connection to a problem. There's no such thing as just a good founder in and of himself. There's only a good founder relative to a specific problem or idea. And too often I have founders pitch me on things that they're, they see as good opportunities from a sort of an MBA standpoint, like, oh, there's a lot of white space in this category or something, but, but they don't really care about that. And I'll contrast that with, um, actually with Q, for example, when, when my co-founder Garrett Rothstein uh, and I first started talking about this and I said to him, Garrett, what if you couldn't pursue this idea? What if I told you for some reason, like, we can't do this together or you can't do this? He's like, he looked at me like I was crazy. He's like, Spencer, I am so obsessed with this problem of helping people figure out what to watch. If I, I don't even know what I would do if I couldn't do this, like there, I would do this for free. I just I have to solve this problem because it's so big and I care so deeply about it. And, and, I, and I thought to myself, this is somebody I want to back. This is someone I want to be in business with. So that's what I'm looking for, someone that's so passionate and connected to a particular problem that they can't not work on. You it. know, it's, it's funny. There's two things that I've always said. One I learned from Jeffrey Katzenberg. One I think I came up with on my own. I asked Jeffrey what the secret that he would give to people, you know, young people starting out and coming for career advice and whether it's entrepreneurial or, you know, in the, in the employment context. And he said, people should do the things that they're passionate about. So you use that word, he used that word, and, 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 you know, because the things that you're passionate about, you're going to end up being better at yeah. just the way it works. And people say, oh, I want to follow my passion. Jeffrey's point was follow what you're good at and become passionate about that as opposed to the passion but not being good at it. That's you know? a good, I like that edit. It's like, yeah, <laughs> you, and, know, you and, can be passionate and, about, about uh, you know, something that's not not going to lead you down business. And, and, so and Spencer, to your point, I, I, I make a baseball analogy. I always say, um, if I'm going to make a bet on a pitcher, it's going to be a pitcher that needs to win. Not just a pitcher that's got a good curveball or a good fastball or a knuckleball or whatever kind of pitch that particular pitcher is throwing, but somebody who needs to win, somebody who's got the fire in their belly that says, I need to win, because I know plenty of really talented people who kind of kick back and 
yeah, yeah, great. You know, they're not there. Maybe it's passion. Maybe it's that, you know, go get them attitude that, that you need, but find me a pitcher who needs to win and has the stuff, you know, needing to win without the talent is still not a bad bet because if you need to win, you know, as long as you're not doing something untoward, you're going to put everything against it. And, you know, it just, it, it, it's all the lessons we learn and the lessons that we share and the mentoring that we get to do. And by the way, uh, I'm certain there's stuff you've thrown against the wall that hasn't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, is there one story of the one that you, the one that got away, the one that was, you know, I, I can't, I can't not ask that. Sure. Well, so I keep the stock certificate, uh, you know, listeners can't see, but, but behind me is the stock certificate for one of my failed investments. One of the first angel investments that I made was a company called Easy to Get. And this was in 1999. And it was basically DoorDash, but it was DoorDash 22 years too early. It was DoorDash before smartphones, before a gig economy, before online ordering, before restaurants were ready for that. But you would go to a website, easytoget.com or call a phone number and you could order a restaurant delivery and then they would handle the delivery for you. But it was way, way, way too early. And I lost, uh, you know, I lost a bunch of money in that angel investment. And it was my first, the first real investment that I made. So I learned a lot from that. Um, sometimes timing is as important as execution. Um, and uh, sometimes ideas are just a little bit too early for their time. And luck has something to do with it. Absolutely. As long as you define luck the way that I do. And again, I didn't create this. I took this from somebody. But the definition of luck that I subscribe to is the intersection of preparation and opportunity. So yeah, it, it, like if, that, if, yeah. if you if you look at it through that lens, maybe you have a hit. Well, again, Spencer Raskoff, two things. First of all, my oldest grandson's name Spencer, so that name always resonates with me. And secondly, uh, your success is legendary. And I want to thank you for joining Good Company today. Thank you for having me, Michael. Great to talk to you. I'm Michael Casson. Thanks for listening to Good Company. Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio. A special thanks to Lena Peterson, Chief Brand Officer and Managing Director of MediaLink, for her vision on Good Company. And to Jen Seeley, Vice President of Marketing Communications of MediaLink, for programming amazing talent and content. 